We're going to read once again Titus chapter 1 verse 7. Titus chapter 1 verse 7. And then we're going to read 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through 7. Verses 1 through 7. Please stand with me again. May we know our great and loving Heavenly Father's blessing as we read His Word this morning. Titus chapter 1, verse 7. This is God's Word. For a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre. And now, 1 Timothy chapter 3. And as we read verses 1 through 7, I urge you especially to take note of verse 3. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach. Not given to wine, no striker. Not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient. Not a brawler, not covetous. One that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? The implication, of course, is he cannot. <clears throat> Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of this precious truth. To remain standing for our pastoral prayer, I do want to uh, encourage all of you, if you have uh, any condition that makes it different, difficult for you to continue to stand, please, you are at liberty to be seated. <clears throat> Brethren, let's pray. Our great and holy God, we join our voices with all the voices of the heavenly creatures and the saints that have gone before us in praising Thee. Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, who wert and art and evermore shalt be, we lift up our voices to magnify here this day 
thy holy name. We praise thee. We magnify thee in thy mighty works among the children of men. We know as we read from the pen of the psalmist that thou alone art God. And we do pray that we have not come today with an evil heart of unbelief, but that we have come with anticipation, with joy. We have come in faith of meeting with our great God. How great thou art, how glorious, splendid, majestic. Father, all the saints adore thee. We pray for thy dear children around this world. We pray, O righteous Father, that every gathering of thy people is lifting up heartfelt, mind-engaged worship. And we pray, O my Father, especially for our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted for the name of Christ. O Father, be with them. Help us to think of them often. Help us to pray for them often. May we remember them as being in bonds with them. Father, for every faithful pastor, for every missionary across this globe, may they be filled with thy mighty spirit to preach the glorious truths of Christ and of thine infallible word to thy people today. And may thy people be satisfied that they have fed upon Christ Jesus. Oh, my Savior, we plead, Thou art the heavenly King. Thou art our great High Priest who suffered and bled and died. Thou didst rise from the dead and Thou art seated at the Father's right hand. Thy intercession for us gives us great hope, great confidence, great thankfulness, great joy in thee today. O blessed Christ, thou art always among thy candlesticks. Draw near to us today. Reprove us, rebuke us, comfort us, edify us, build us up in the most holy faith. Make thy children today more like thee. Father, again, our hearts rise up to thee on behalf of the lost. There are lost ones here. Lost. They do not understand their perilous condition. O Lord, wouldst thou bring that holy fear that turns them to the good news that Jesus saves sinners. Oh God, grant repentance, grant faith in the crucified and resurrected Lord. And now, oh Father, thou knowest our needs as a congregation. Thou knowest our needs as individuals. Thou knowest the needs of our city, of our state, of our nation and of this world. Father, despite the fact that it appears that our world has lost its corporate mind and is in chaos and in darkness, 
and satanic travesty. We pray that thy people would be advancing thy kingdom this very day. We thank thee that just our gathering and worshiping thee with our whole hearts today is holy warfare. We stand against the powers of darkness and we reject the wickedness that surrounds us. And in thy name, we pray that thou wouldst fill us with a love for what is holy and pure and just and good. Deliver us from the grips of this world. Deliver us from phony religion. Deliver us from being phony as we come here. And deliver us, O oh God, from the perils of our remaining flesh. We need thee. O oh Father, may every one of thy children rejoice in thee today. We are crying out. We are crying up. And we are crying to thee in the name of Christ. May thy blessings fall Father, may darkness be turned to light here today. May sorrow be turned to joy. And I pray, O righteous God, that in our joy we would love Thee and love one another fervently. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The Lord Jesus Christ was the greatest preacher, teacher, bishop, and shepherd of human souls that has ever walked this earth. As the eternal Son of God come in the flesh, he preached to his people, he taught his people, he reproved, corrected, and prayed for his people, and he fed, protected, and guided his people. And as the head of the church, he continues in these very activities, including the discipline and chastening of his people. Every regenerate soul can say with Paul, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus loves and therefore cares for his sheep. The question arises then, how does he continue his care in light of his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension into glory? The apostles that were with him saw him, heard him, touched him. We don't. How do we know his care then? How do we know his comforts? How do we know his joys? How do we know his peace? 
Well, there are more answers to that than one. But I offer you this one this morning. It is through the interaction of the members of his local churches under the teaching and leading of their pastors. It is not because the pastors themselves are special. It is because they are here to preach Christ and his word and to explain the life for which he gave his life and to encourage one another in our holy war against sin, the world, and the devil. And by that you know, I trust, I'm speaking of a spiritual war, not a physical one. This is a great blessing from the Lord. People that despise the church have either never been in a real church, a true church, or they're unregenerate. The churches are where God's people should come to rejoice in the salvation Jesus Christ gives them and the blessings and the gifts that he showers upon us. Our Heavenly Father is not stingy. He gave his only begotten Son that we might have life. What good gifts will he withhold? So we should come expecting our Father to meet with us, to bless us, to mature us, to grow us in the faith of Christ. Because he's making us like Christ. For this reason, qualified men are crucial. They're not optional for the health of Jesus' churches. Inspired by the Holy Spirit and educated by the word of God and experience, Paul delivered a series of positive qualifications for an elder in verse 2. We have considered those in some detail. They're character qualities that a man of God must have. You must know them, the qualities, so that you can recognize them. Or you will shortchange the church of Jesus Christ when you appoint one. That responsibility lies in the congregation. Elders don't post themselves. They are recognized by the church of Jesus Christ. So Paul now continues with a series of negative qualifications in verse 3. We had positive character qualities and now negatives in verse 3. Character qualities that he must not have. So the title of our message is Not Given to Wine, Bullying, Greed. May the Spirit, the refreshing Spirit of our God, our Blessed Father, fill us with light, life, 
and love for and in Jesus Christ. And may the Spirit-breathed Word become clear and edifying for God's blood-bought people. So our first thought is this. A candidate for eldership must not be given to wine. The Spirit-breathed text says... A bishop then must be blameless, not given to wine. That phrase is repeated in Titus chapter 1, verse 7. For a bishop must be blameless, irreproachable. He must live a life through which scandalous sins cannot be penned. He must be blameless as the steward of God, not given to wine. The English phrase, not given to wine, comes from two Greek words. The first word means not. Pretty simple. The second word means one who is given to drink too much wine. So, not one who is given to drinking too much wine. The Greek can also be translated addicted to wine. And again, it can be translated not a drunkard. The Lo and Nida lexicon, Greek dictionary, defines it as a person who habitually drinks too much and thus becomes a drunkard. A heavy drinker. Each of these definitions turns the issue for us a little bit so that we can gather what's being said here. J.N.D. Kelly translates it, a slave of drink. Commentator William Mounts helps us here. The Greek word is a compound of alongside of and wine. Alongside of wine. The picture, Mounts says, is of a person who spends too much time sitting with their wine. That's the idea. Now, we find this idea in the requirements for deacons. Likewise, must the deacons be not given too much wine. And we find it again when we read Paul's letter to Titus, chapter 2, verse 3. The aged women. The aged women. Likewise, that they, in be, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not given to much wine. And that literally means not, this is, this is directly, literally the words 
from Greek into English. Not to wine much enslaved. My brethren, it's quite obvious, a weighty consideration for any person, for any saint of God. This is exactly why their leaders must not be. So when we consider this, all of this together, the Holy Spirit's words here, now listen carefully, this is a place not to drift. Shouldn't drift anyway. But here's a place you don't want to, you don't want to miss. The Holy Spirit's word here are not about drinking wine as such. It is about drunkenness and self-control. That's the Spirit's intent here. It is about excess, lack of self-control. God's word does not absolutely prohibit drinking wine. Paul told Timothy, drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities. And we must understand that the alcoholic wine in the apostles' day was mixed with water to purify the water. Countries from time immemorial have had to deal with water that's not drinkable. And one of the purposes of mixing uh, a, a certain quantity of wine in the water was for medicinal value, but also to purify the water. There is purifying um, characteristics of wine. So, if you're with me on that, water, a good bit, with a little bit of wine in it. <clears throat> What's being said here is that to become drunk, one had to spend much time drinking it. You couldn't just drink it, and all of a sudden you're out of your mind. If you wanted to be intoxicated, you had to linger long with the bottle. We get that? In other words, you can drink it in the state that it was without it having a negative, intoxicating effect. If you want the effect, you've got to drink a lot of it. And if you're wanting to drink a lot of it, if you're spending all of that time in drinking it, such an action would prove a person addicted to wine. They were purposely attempting to get loaded. They said, that's not the man to be in the pulpit. He's a slave to something other than Christ and the Holy Spirit. That's what our craving and our addiction should be. The Lord Jesus 
and the power of his spirit. That's what we ought to be craving and imbibing as much as we can. No fear of intoxication there. So, for that very reason, the word of God absolutely prohibits and condemns drunkenness. That's not a maybe thing. Drunkenness is always condemned by the word of God. For the drunkard and the glutton shall come to poverty. By the way, when some people start making as much about gluttony as they do about drinking, I will listen to them. The drunkard and the glutton shall come to poverty. Who hath woe? Who hath sorrow? Who hath contentions? Who hath babblings? Who hath wounds without cause? Who hath redness of eyes? They that tarry long at the wine. They that go to seek mixed wine. Paul prohibits drunkenness with the clearest possible language. Whatever your view on drinking is, you cannot escape that Paul says, the minute you begin to be intoxicated, you've gone too far. Be not drunk with wine. Who needs a commentary? Be not drunk with wine. Wherein is excess. That's the key word for us. That's what we want to get a hold of. Once again, we're talking about self-control. Which is the idea in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. That that very idea, as we said before, is one of Paul's most important thoughts and commands about the Christian life. Self-control. If you're born of God's Spirit, you have the power of the Spirit. And while your flesh will fight you, exhaust you, complain against you, you can overcome what it craves. Self-control. It is Christianity. Nobody's perfect at it. Now do you feel better? But you can be good at it. Do we understand? Why? Because we in ourselves are strong. That's the wrong place to look for strength. It's always to look to Christ, His grace, and His wonderful Spirit, which is abundantly given to us. Because he loves us. So, we must not miss the primary point of this particular qualification. The underlying theme is self-control. Drunkenness impairs your motor skills. In other words, you can't walk a straight line. You can't use your hands properly. You can't do mechanical things the way you should. 
you endanger yourself and others. Should never drive a car having imbibed alcohol. Have to leave what a quantity of that would be for your conscience. But I would avoid ever getting behind a wheel in a condition of even remotely impaired function. It also impairs your judgment. And that is vital. It impairs your judgment, your ability to think. You will not think right intoxicated. You will make yourself, generally speaking, a fool. And not everyone that drinks is a sloppy drunk. But drunkenness is always sinful. I hope that's clear. The man of God then must not be, number one, controlled by his appetites. Number two, given to excess. And number three, his judgment must not be blurred by alcohol or drugs, illicit drugs. And he's got to be careful with some legitimate drugs. I've known fine pastors who have become addicted to pain medicine after very painful surgeries and those kinds of things. A pastor's got to be in control at some level. He's not at 100%, my guess is, most of the time. But he's got to be in a clear-minded state to the best of his ability. It's going to be more or less in some men. Some men a little slower to a decision. Some men are faster to a decision. But he's got to have his judgment. And that's exactly what drunkenness destroys His judgment must not be blurred by intoxicating things. Paul tells us that drunkards shall not inherit the kingdom of God. How powerful is that? They have given over their control as an image bearer of God to something that will destroy them, destroy those around them. As the son of an alcoholic, I know it by painful experience. Therefore, those who are given to the excess of Truly anything that impairs their ability to think are disqualified from the pastorate. Now, once again, 
Christ's blood-bought people are not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a drunkard. Why? It's utterly un- and anti-Christian. It is to be controlled by something that destroys you rather than being filled with the Holy Spirit and controlled by that which gives you life and life eternal. Calvin wisely comments, quote, Indeed, to drink wine excessively is not only very unbecoming in a pastor, but commonly draws along with it many things still worse. And that's true. Such as quarrels, foolish attitudes, unchaste conduct. In other words, sexual immorality. It's one of, the, one of the reasons worldly men use alcohol to ply and seduce women. They lose their power of judgment. He goes on to say, in other things, which it is not necessary to describe. <laughs> Close quote. <clears throat> Thomas Manton summarizes Paul's thought this way. Quote, for ministers, their work lies with God. Therefore, they had need live in constant sobriety. Under pain of death, neither Aaron nor his sons, the priests, were to drink wine or strong drink when they went into the tabernacle of the congregation. Leviticus 10, 9. Do not drink wine or strong drink, thou nor thy sons with thee, when you go into the tabernacle of the congregation, lest ye die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. Manton then says, It is probable Nadab and Abihu's miscarriage in offering strange fire, was occasioned by fumes of strong drink. He was not the only one that associated that death penalty uh, <clears throat> with Nadab and Abihu. Uh, there are those commentators, it's not agreed upon, not anything to die, it's not a hill to die on, but there are those that would say, God slew both of them, and then he gave this, this law with a death penalty to it immediately. So there's at least some kind of connection there. But uh, how far we would not argue. So it is probable Nadab and Abihu's miscarriages is offer, in offering strange fire was occasioned by fumes of strong drink. For presently God makes that law for Aaron and his sons. <clears throat> So the apostle, 1 Timothy 3.3, 3, a bishop must be sober, not given to wine. Because of the excellency of his ministration or his service, which requires meditation, freedom of contemplation, which is hindered by the fumes of wine 
and strong drink. Close quote. A servant of Jesus Christ must be blameless then in relationship to alcohol. Drunkenness has ruined, perverted, and devastated untold millions upon millions throughout the history of mankind. The destructive power of alcohol abuse defies our comprehension. It destroys lives, wealth, families, and health. And as in Corinth, it can make the beauty and the glory of the Lord's Supper a thing that requires rebuke. Paul says, one is hungry and another is drunken. When you gather, it's not the Lord's Supper. In fact, Mounts gives us another meaning of given to wine. He says that, that the verb also has a wider meaning of to assault with drunken violence, as we'll see in the word that comes next, a striker. Some commentators put those two words together, that one of the outcomes of um, the excess of drinking wine is violence. Happens all the time. So statistics, if they are to be trusted, what poll can you really trust nowadays? <clears throat> but statistics, if they can be trusted, show that nearly half of the murders, suicides, and other deaths <clears throat> in our country are related to alcohol abuse. A pastor then should be utterly free of any hint of a problem with alcohol. He is to lead God's people in a holy sobriety. So, Christ's pastors, candidates for pastoral work, must manifest self-control. That's the issue. It's not just, I don't pop a top with the boys. That's not it. It's I have control about things that matter in my service to Christ and his people. The Lord Jesus was the model of self-control. Self-control. And never excessive in anything but mercy, grace, and love. We praise God that he was excessive and still is with his great grace. And that brings us to the second negative this morning. A candidate for the eldership must not be a striker. He must not be a striker. A bishop then must be blameless. Not a striker. Now, what does that mean? Well, on the surface, it means someone who, when he's in an argument, doesn't win it with his fists. I would probably, 
is used metaphorically. <clears throat> a striker is a person who is pugnacious and demanding, a bully, a violent person. The scripture says that we're to be swift to hear, slow to anger. That's a command from Christ. And those who are quick to anger have much to repent of. It is the command of your Savior and Lord. <clears throat> the English word pugnacious, that's not one we use very often, but it means quarrelsome, bad-tempered. One dictionary defines it as ready and able to resort to force. That would also be the person who looks threateningly at you when you're disagreeing. It's the same spirit. He may not be swinging, but in his head, he's using force, not truth. We have to win arguments by truth. Now, I'm talking about an elder to the Lord's people. There are situations that demand force, but not between the elder and the, the people. When and if someone proves themselves to be unrepentant, do not force them. You excommunicate them. And with sorrow. So, as mentioned above, some commentators connect this word, striker, to the previous one, not given to wine. When people have been drinking, it's quite common in arguments for it to break out in a fight, in violence. Things that some, and, and even when it's not physical violence, there's verbal and emotional violence that does great damage, sometimes more than just hitting somebody. You can say things with people that deform them for years. And it comes out of that same spirit. Christ does not appoint hotheads to lead his people. Pastors regularly deal with highly emotional people, explosive personal relationships among families or church members, and constant criticism. If he's not someone who knows how to deal with stress, he shouldn't be in the pastorate because it's always stressful. They often encounter deeply held doctrinal disagreements and convictions contrary to their own. Elders must often deal with immature, misinformed, ill-natured, arrogant, cranky, tradition-encrusted, 
self-willed and self-centered believers who are often argumentative, combative, insulting, insensitive, or overly sensitive. Likewise, they must try to navigate God's children through delicate, embarrassing, shameful, complex, tense, or even dangerous situations. A man with a short fuse, an irritable man, a knee-jerk reaction man, cannot resolve these kinds of problems in a Christ-honoring way. Very often the stress makes him combative. Physical and verbal abuse aimed at even the most frustrating, immature, or bad-natured believer is inappropriate and unacceptable for Christ's elders. Paul wrote to the Philippians, Now, I, Paul, myself beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am base among you, but being absent am bold toward you. Now, once again, this is a characteristic of Christ, not all the characteristics of Christ. There is gentleness and there's time for sharp rebuke. You can't take one and leave the other. It makes the congregation lopsided. When dealing with some of Christ's difficult sheep, there is a place for righteous indignation, firmness, boldness, and even, as I just mentioned, sharp rebuke. Because all those things are found in Christ himself. Never in a sinful way. He's always the model for it. And the... the the, uh, the elder with his head on needs to be able to say at least in some measure, thy gentleness hath made me great. An elder must be able to embody James' dis description. Now this is something he will grow in from the time he begins to the time he ends. This isn't, he comes in, he's just got it. He's going to have to grow in it. The Lord will custom make difficulties for him to make him see what he is so that he will be trusting Christ all the time for what's going on in Christ's congregation. So James said, the wisdom that is from above is first pure. Then, listen carefully, peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, and without hypocrisy. You can't do that without the Holy Spirit. And he, as I have, at times will fail. The issue is talking about patterns. What is the pattern of the life? 
as with the previous qualifications, the underlying theme is self-control. Not a striker. Parents sometimes fail at this. This is why it's important in the leadership. Anybody that has more than one child, and even when you just have one, you can find yourself stretched as far as your emotions can go without you getting in somebody's face. We need to learn how to mortify the deeds of the body, learn how to use when there must be a biblically appropriate force. See, all of these things are for the purpose of glorifying Christ because all these things exalt Christ. They're characters in Christ. And they're for the training and the growing up of God's people. That's why ignoring faithful preaching of the word is to your own destruction. Possibly even your own self-delusion. Christ's elder must not be given to wine, addicted to wine, no striker, and no striker neither physically or emotionally. There's a lot of people that know how to beat up your emotions. Now, number three, a candidate for the eldership must not be greedy of filthy lucre. Now, we don't use those words much anymore. Those of us who read the authorized versions may bring it up on occasion. But it's not something generally in the language of our culture. Filthy lucre. Well, greedy of filthy lucre means shamelessly greedy for money. It means to be avaricious. Boy, that's a great word. We don't use that very often. But that means excessively desirous of gaining wealth. That's our nation. And I hope it is none of you. It is a, I, an idol in the heart. I want and I want and I want more. Now we can get really crafty with it. I want and I want and I want to the glory of God and I want. And want to the glory of God. Now you can use your funds for the glory of God. But are you? What do you mean by that? How are you using it for his glory and the advancement of his kingdom? That's an important question. If there's a pastor who's living for making that next buck. He will not... Preach the right things to his people. If he's wanting that raise, if he's wanting a new vacation package, he may just start preaching what tickles everybody's grace bone instead of calling us to the life in grace that Christ calls us to.
excessively desirous of acquiring wealth. Oh, where else but America do you see the kind of stuff on television where everybody's got to upgrade their house to that? Oh, I'm not happening unless I'm wearing this, and that's past my money level, but I'll find a way to get it. It's the religion of stuff. It's, the, it's, a, it's a natural religion. I want stuff because stuff makes me happy. And I have more stuff than you. Or I have newer stuff than you. Or I'm more tasteful than you. My brethren, it's a poison in our nation. And Christians often, listen, if the multiple millions and probably billions of dollars that Christians give to entertainment went to the missions and the advancement of God's kingdom, we would see some remarkable things change. Oh, we'll send 50 bucks here every now and then instead of, all right, let's give to We Hurt. Send them $10,000. That's going to be all of the kind of movies we'll go see for the next year. How about we'll sit down and read the Bible instead of going to the movies? No, that's legalism, right? (laughs) Brethren, we need leaders that understand these things and that embody these things. An elder in the church of Jesus Christ must not be driven by a hunger for money or things. The Lord Jesus said, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not. To, hath not. Hath not where to lay his head. This is the living God who owns all things. Likewise, he said, no man can serve two masters. Not possible. No man can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will hold the one and despise the other. Ye cannot, listen to our Savior, ye cannot serve God and mammon. There's no 50-50. There's no 70-30. There's no 90-10. It's all Christ. He is my Lord and in control of what I have and what I do with it. It should be for his glory. It should be for the benefit of his people. It should be for the building of his kingdom. Paul gives the severest. <clears throat> By the way, I left out a very important part. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. You'll have what you need. You will have what you need. The Lord, by the way, will change your definition of need. Got to live long enough to learn that. Now, Paul gives the severest warnings to the greedy and covetous person. Listen, 
I mean, what do you hear about today? Oh, the trans movement. That's really terrible. Oh, the LGBTQ and all of that. Oh, 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 drugs, drugs everywhere. Oh, corruption in government, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. These, this is what's wrong. No, it's not. It is the symptoms of the disease that grip this country. And it's rooted in its pulpits that refuse to stand for righteousness. Paul says, for this you know, he told the Corinthians, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. What does that say about our nation and its professed Christianity? Now, I've seen numbers before. Americans and American Christians give more than loads of other people. Maybe don't generally hear of the great foundations using the, the billions and trillions that they have on God-honoring things. But what about the Lord's people? Thankfully, they do give. Many of them give heartily. Many give sacrificially. Some here in this congregation do. I praise the Lord. I thank the Lord for it. But we need more leaders who are not in the pulpit because of what they're paid. But who know that they've been called of God and who know that a congregation is calling them. And hopefully and praying that they will see that you can live with a whole lot less than you're living on. If your purpose is to use it for the glory of God. Well, Paul said of our precious Savior, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Rich how? Blessed of God with everlasting life and the pardon of sins. The gifts of his spirit, which cannot be purchased, wrangled out of God, pressured out of God. Everlasting life. No matter how difficult it gets here, on the other side of this part of the journey, there's the glory of Christ for eternity. The riches of the universe ruling and reigning with him. We need men in the pulpit who will continue to remind us of those things. When we live in a country that just can't wait to get the next new thing. You don't want a man who's in it for the money. Well, that brings us to our conclusion. I want us to think about this. He's and a candidate for elder and an elder himself is not to be given to wine, not to be violent or a bully, not to be greedy. And it's important that those things are absent. <clears throat> so I leave you with this. The Lord's purpose for these qualifications is both simple 
and profound. Elders must teach, model, and discipline Christ's people in the Christian life, according to the word in the power of the Holy Spirit. All the qualifications of an elder, except being apt to teach, must be found in the life of every believer in Christ. This is the purpose. Fathers, you are shaping your children for the next generation. They are watching every moment how you talk to your wife, how you talk to the other children, how you talk to these people this way, and how you talk to those people that way. They're watching. You are shaping the world as they watch your life. It's the same thing in a congregation. There should be elders who are living a life that either impresses and encourages and builds God's people up to be more Christ-like or that's not happening. That's vital. So, Lying at the very heart of all the things we've looked at this morning is the issue of self-control, which is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. You must be born of God's Spirit to have the self-control for these matters. Again, I make it as clear as possible. No one, especially no one starting out as an elder, has all these things down perfectly. No one does. But that doesn't mean, okay, license not to mortify. The triune God's eternal purpose is to save his people and make them like Christ. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn of many brethren. If you're born of God's Spirit, you're one of those brethren. There is one model for you, Jesus Christ. He doesn't fail. I fail. Every elder that will come here will fail at some level. But we're to be saying, look to Christ. Look to Christ. Look to Christ in his word. Give your heart to the word. Give your heart and mind to prayer. And realize what world you're living in. And how you're going to impact it. By faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Part of this glorious sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit is adding converted sinners to a local church so that they may grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. This is his family. You are his blood-bought sheep. He will give you the teachers you need if you're crying out to him for them. And I pray that you are. May God help us as we continue to seek his face in the matter of an elder. Amen. Father, we are grateful, grateful, grateful to thee. We love thee and thank thee for loving us in Christ. Lord, forgive us when we forget that Christ is the model. We may know wonderful and blessed Christian men and women who influence us and encourage us and build us up in the faith. But Lord, may we never take our eyes off thee. O Christ, to be like thee. The day is coming when it will be so. 
when we see thee as thou art. Now, O God, bless thy dear children the rest of the day. Fill them with wisdom and love and glory and power and thinking minds that they would take the truth set before them and apply them to their lives. May it be for thy glory and for the good of this congregation and their lives. In Jesus' name, amen.